Hello, and welcome to A Great Woman and Her Time, the first episode in a WXAV 88.3 FM series that examines the extraordinary life of a 19th century Irish woman. And now your host, Graham Peck. Hello, my name is Graham Peck, and I am a professor of history at St. Xavier University in Chicago, where I have taught since 2002. I have written a book and produced a film on the origins of the Civil War, and you can learn more about my career by visiting my website, civilwarprof.com. But if you love listening to history, then stay strapped into your earbuds, because we are going to take a journey into the past. One of the perennial issues that faces historians is the relationship between extraordinary individuals and their times. Just to take some of the most notable examples, Alexander the Great, Isaac Newton, George Washington, Joseph Stalin. These were figures at the heart of epochal changes, and therefore the historians who study them or their eras have to assess to what degree did those individuals reshape their times, or to what degree did the times shape them. Now, different historians will make differing judgments about the relative weight of the individual or the broader social forces in shaping the past. But very few historians will dispense entirely with the idea of an extraordinary individual, what was once called the theory of the great man in history. After all, certain epical changes, like emancipation during the American Civil War, simply require telling the story of the individual whose decisions changed the arc of history. But in telling that story, the historian will also explain a lot about the times. Which leads me to the story that I want to tell. It is a story about somebody I have come to consider quite extraordinary. But it is not a prototypical story of a great man in history. Quite the reverse. In fact, what makes the story so fascinating is that it is the story of a humble woman. Not of military valor and conquest, as was the case with Alexander the Great, or of scientific genius, as was the case with Isaac Newton, or political manipulation, as was the case with a Joseph Stalin. Rather, it is a story of tremendous loss to which she responded with unstinting generosity. And yet, in her humble, quiet, unadorned, and unflamboyant way, she changed the history of her times and the history of ours. In the series that will follow, I wish to tell her story, and to do so, we need to climb into her mind, to take a journey of the imagination into her past circumstances and to how she responded to them. So let me ask you to imagine that you are born in Dublin, Ireland in the late 18th century to a well-off Irish Catholic family. Your early years are ones of love and laughter. You have a beloved father who is well known for his generosity to the poor. 
Your family door is always open to the poor children who come for food and clothing and succor. But this early life of joy is cut short by the first of the terrible losses you will endure. Your father dies at the age of five, leaving his wife, who is much younger, bereft and unable to handle the properties he has accumulated. Over the next 15 years before she dies at a young age, leaving you an orphan, she fritters away all of his property, leaving you homeless, and you've moved from home to home, in fact, before she dies, and once she does, you move into the home of her brother. But his poverty forces you to move on quickly, and you lodge with yet other relatives. They care for you and your siblings, but they are Protestants, not Catholic, and they ridicule your religion, the religion that is the tie to your father and a critical part of your identity. Thus it is, in your mid-twenties, you leave them, accepting the offer to be a high-class servant in the family of a wealthy but childless couple. You are rootless and still entirely dependent on others. It proves to be an extraordinary stroke of good fortune, however. They find in you the daughter they had never had, and over the 19 years that you live with them, the relations that come to subsist between you are those of parent and child. They encourage your desire to give to others, and they permit you to develop your knowledge and practice of the Catholic faith. Yet the years with them ones of relative ease and contentment also contain the seeds of pain. For after 13 years, the woman who adopted you into her home contracts a nasty, wasting disease. And for the next three years, you tend to her day and night. Two years later, her husband contracts a disease of his own, and you nurse him for a year before his passing. During that same year, your cousin dies at a young age, leaving four motherless children. Filled with mercy, you adopt two of them. But these deaths take their toll. They were slow and painful, and they leave you again alone. But you do have a lot of money. The childless couple leaves you their entire inheritance, worth today about $2 million. The money does not soothe your losses, but it could have made life very easy. Any husband in Dublin almost could have been yours. Instead, you choose to build a large house, what will become known as a house of mercy, and you intend to use it to serve poor women and children. Your brother calls it your folly. It will take three years to build this home, but in the meantime, it does not slow your merciful impulses. When you encounter an old, mentally ill, impoverished, homeless woman on the streets with filthy habits and everyone else has abandoned her, you take her into your home and nurse her for five years until her death. You also begin caring for five additional children aged 7 to 17, after your sister dies. You, in fact, adopt them two years later 
when your brother-in-law also dies of a sudden and shocking illness, leaving all five children orphans. By then, you are the adopted mother not only of seven children, but of nine. Two from your cousin, five from your sister, and an orphan and a homeless child that you found on the streets and also adopted. When the large home is finally completed, you move into it with two young women and commence the acts of mercy. Your reasons for doing so are deeply related to your Catholic faith. After you left your Protestant relatives, your Catholic faith matured and flourished, deeply influenced by Catholic priests, one of whom set an extraordinary example spending all of his free time clothing, feeding, and educating poor children in Dublin, and another of whom on his deathbed left you an extraordinary injunction about serving the poor. Do not put your trust in any human being, he said, but place all your confidence in God alone. Do not put your trust in any human being, he emphatically repeated, but place all your confidence in God alone. This conviction would sink deep roots and profoundly shape your future. Animated by it, at the age of 51, you choose to begin a new female religious order dedicated to the acts of mercy. This decision would produce many good works, but it would also exact a fierce toll. The establishment of the order would require you to recruit a large number of devoted young sisters eager to do God's will in serving the poor. Over the remaining ten years of your life, an extraordinary number of them would flock to the order. They would become your companions. You would live with them, love them, mentor them. They would be your community, your new family. Yet tragedy would strike this new family with even more severity than it struck the old. During those years, you would bury 13 of those sisters in Dublin, frequently leaving you in terrible grief. Eight additional sisters, whom you had loved and cherished and sent to other convents, would also pass, and you would learn of their passing only by correspondence. This astonishing parade of death led you to say, The tomb never seems closed in my regard. And indeed, it is not. During those same years, three of your nine adopted children would also die. After the last of those deaths, you wrote to a fellow sister, My earthly joys are cut down. Yet the incredible cavalcade of loss did not deter your acts of mercy. Instead, you wrote, The joys of my state are many, and I feel the most lively gratitude. Your leadership and passion spurred the expansion of the order from its origins in Dublin to 14 other locations in the United Kingdom. Bishops from throughout the UK 
would write to you requesting new convents and new sisters because everywhere the sisters went, they sheltered the homeless, they educated the ignorant, and they succored the poor. They would become beloved, known as the walking sisters, because they walked and served amongst the poor. After you die, an Irish Catholic bishop writes, We have all reason to weep for the loss which Ireland and England too must sustain. A more zealous, a more prudent, a more useful, a more disinterested, a more successful benefactress of human nature, I believe never existed in Ireland since the days of St. Bridget. This story, utterly improbable, is nevertheless entirely true. It is the story of Catherine Macaulay, born in 1778 in Dublin, Ireland. In 1827, she founded the House of Mercy using money that she acquired from an inheritance from the Callaghan family, and in 1831, she took vows as the first Sister of Mercy, a new religious order in the Catholic Church that was dedicated to the service of poor women and children. During her lifetime, the order spread throughout Ireland and England, and after her death, her fellow sisters, profoundly influenced by her zeal and her evangelism, spread the order throughout the world. The thousands of sisters who joined the hundreds of convents throughout the globe created innumerable orphanages, asylums, schools, and hospitals over the next century. To take an example close to home, in 1846, the newly founded Chicago Sisters of Mercy established St. Xavier Academy, the forerunner to today's St. Xavier University. Over the past 171 years, the university has served Chicago and its immigrants, a profound and continuing legacy of Catherine Macaulay. In the episodes that follow, we will shine a light on the life of Catherine Macaulay in order to understand her remarkable story, one of tremendous loss and transcendent love, and one that has continuing resonance today. To do so, we will examine the Ireland that she grew up in, the Catholic practices and beliefs of many of its people, the ministries that the Sisters of Mercy engaged in, and the beliefs that animated them. On the docket for our next episode is the Ireland in which she lived. You've been listening to WXAV's A Great Woman and Her Time, a program created, researched, written, and narrated by Graham Peck. Engineering and editing by Peter Creighton. For more information on the series, please visit Graham Peck's website, civilwarprof.com.